All right, let's open our Bibles up to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to pick it up where we left off. And last time we were looking, of course, we, we took it down to verse 15, and Paul, of course, uh, talking prophetically to Timothy, that men in the last days would be fierce despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away, he told him. I pointed out that up to this point, you know, a lot of people read this passage as being indicative of a godless world, of which it is. I mean, you know, obviously the world doesn't believe. But what Paul says here in verse 5 is that all the things he just talked about, as far as mankind, would be predominant in those who have a form of godliness. And we talked a lot about that, which in the Greek means a, a display of piety, specifically the gospel and holiness, which I think is very interesting. And so their form of godliness, though, he says, has no power. It's a form of godliness, but it has no power. They deny the power of God. It reminded me of a verse in Titus in chapter 1, verse 16, and, and, and it says, they profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient and unto every good work reprobate. And of those particular times, Paul tells Timothy to turn away. Reprobates. Then he goes on into verse 6 here. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away of diverse lust, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. In my notes, I put on here that women are the target. Ladies, don't get mad at me. But it's true. You really only need to look to history to see that false teachers and reprobates target unstable women to further their ministries. They just always have. Why is this and why it's effective? Well, first, the reason is because this is the model that Satan has always used. The very first time we see it happen is in the garden, right? In the very beginning, you know, he comes to Eve and he says, Yea, hath God said. Is that really what the Lord said? And he begins to put that doubt we were talking about today, uh, you know, before service. You know, it it placed that doubt in, in her mind that somehow God was trying to keep from her something that was more pleasurable than what he had planned, which is not true. But that's how these guys operate. They're doing exactly what Satan did. They come in and they begin. I've seen it done over and over again. When I was pastoring Calvary Chapel, and I hope I don't make anybody at Calvary Chapel who's watching me mad, but I saw this happen. And a lot of uh, bad teaching, uh, not from the pulpit, but just from those who had other agendas, let me put it that way, begin to bring in books unbeknownst to me until I got to read them. And these books were generally passed out to the women. And it would go to the women, and then from the women it would go to their husbands. And the next thing I know, I'm hearing stuff being talked about and taught that just is heretical. You go, where did you get this from? Well, I've been reading this book. I know a lot of times, especially, you know, I've, I've been here three years on the money. This October will be three years as far as us doing our our broadcast. But maybe, do you know what, you know, some of you guys here, maybe some watching or listening by radio, uh, understand what a discernment ministry is. And there's many of them out there. And they're they're necessary. Not all of them are good, but I I would encourage anybody. You know, you can go to equip.org. You can go to Lighthouse Trails. The one I like the best is... uh, the Berean Call, which used to be uh, featured by Dave Hunt and T.A. McMahon, and T.A. still runs it, and uh, Dave, of course, is home with the Lord. But there's many of them out there, and they're discernment ministries, and these are people and guys who I think are just anointed in this particular area, and, but a lot of people don't like them. Why? Because they point out error. That's what they do, and sometimes they name names. There's a great book. If you've never read it, every Christian needs to read it. It's called The Seduction of Christianity by Dave Hunt. It's old, 
very old. It was back in the 80s, but I used to buy boxes of them. And I, I would almost make it required reading. Because back, even back in the 80s, Dave was one of those guys who named names. He would name names. And he would give the references and what they said. And here's what the Bible says. Because he wanted you to be aware. Not because he was trying to stir up controversy for the sake of controversy, but he wanted you to be aware. That's what those type of ministries are for. But a lot of these reprobate teachers and these guys that, that Dave and, and so many other uh, discernment ministries point out, they target women. This is what they've always done. And you look at through history and you can see, uh, look at Mary Baker Eddy. I couldn't name all of the cults that have been started through ladies. Which is why Paul, you know, remember back in chapter 2 of uh, 1 Timothy, he said this was the reason that he didn't allow a woman to teach because of their susceptibility to deception. Go back and read. That was his only reason for it. And it wasn't an ability question. We covered that in depth. So some great women teachers. Kay Arthur's on the top of my list. I mean, the woman just flat knows what she's doing, but she just knows the Word of God. But yet she would be the first to tell you that you've got to be careful in those areas. You know. The reason it's effective why do they target women? Well, the reason that they do that is because it is effective. And the reason that it's effective is because, unfortunately, within the body of Christ, and ladies, you'll know that what I'm saying is true on this, most men abdicate their responsibility as leaders of the house, and they allow and sometimes force the women to have no choice but to do it. And I feel for those ladies. I do. I feel, and, and I've had people come to me and go, why is the church made up of only women? Because almost every denomination, you go to any church and you'll find that most of the people sitting there are women. Why is that? I don't believe, I heard a guy say, well, women are more spiritual. I, I don't necessarily believe that. I think that they're more open to the leading of the Holy Spirit than what men are. And so, you know, a lot of men just go, okay, honey, you take care of it. And so they allow that. And it's wrong. And, you know, but that's why they target those women. And so, ladies, be on your toes. Be in the Word of God. You know, you don't have to fall prey to those things. Most of these women who fall prey to that stuff are not looking for the truth anyway. They're looking for something, but it's not the truth. And so, he says that they're ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. So they're constantly reading. And this, this, that verse 7 applies to the deceiver and to the deceived. They're ever learning. They're always coming up with some new thing, you see. There's always some new doctrine that they are excited about. Tossed to and fro, as James says, by every wind of doctrine. And it's a scary place to be when you see people who are like that. They're never able to get grounded in the Word of God. And that's sad. It's sad. Ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And then he goes on. He says, now as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses... So do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith. But they shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be manifest unto all men, as theirs also was. Now this is an interesting verse. And if you're taking notes, make note of the fact that this is a New Testament revelation of an Old Testament truth. What are you talking about? Well, Janus and Jambres that Paul mentions here. Now, you got to keep it in mind, gang. I know so often as people listen to me teach and they've been listening for you. Listen, you've heard me say, when Paul was teaching, he wasn't teaching from the New Testament. You understand that, right? He was teaching from the Old Testament. That's all they had. The New Testament was in the process of being canonized. We'll talk about that some other time, how we got the, the, the canon that we have but not tonight. But, but that, it was before that. So when he was teaching through that, he mentions here that as Janus and Jambres, they're not mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament. They're just not there. Their persons are there. These are the two magicians, these Egyptian magicians that withstood Moses. You remember the story where every time Moses went up there and they were beginning to do, these guys would come out and by the power of the occult, or, 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 or their closeness to Satan, and however you want to, they had some connection. They were able to duplicate to a point, to a point, 
some of the miracles, the genuine miracles that Moses, that God was actually performing through Moses, except when it came to the time when finally Moses throws down his rod, and of course, and God turns it into a serpent, and that serpent devours theirs. Then their folly was manifest to those around them that, you know what, it's only a point. God finally stepped in and said, no, this is enough. And but Moses mentioned, or excuse me, but Paul mentions this here. And I just think it's important to note that there is New Testament revelation about Old Testament things. The, the, the Bible's really full of it. I wasn't going to bring this up, but it just, it, it dawned on me as I was preparing tonight. You know, one of these times I'll do a study for you just to show you why you can trust that book that you're holding in your hands. Why it is so accurate. Just some of the neat stuff. I was looking at one of the things that always comes to mind is 1 John chapter 2. And I believe it's verse 23. You, somebody look that verse up for me, will you? I don't have it in front of me. Uh, 1 John 23, uh, chapter 2, verse 23. Now, this is an interesting verse. You, do you got it? Read it for me. Father also. Yeah. You'll notice that the second half of that, he that acknowledged that the Son had the Father also, you'll notice that that's in italics. That, if that's a King James, right? It's in italics. Now, why is that? Let me give you the facts. little story. This is kind of cool. But this is one of hundreds. When the King James guys were putting it together, there was 50 of them, scholars, that were on that committee to translate the original Greek into their English. They came across this verse. And there was no Greek manuscript. They didn't have it. There was no Greek manuscript that said, he that acknowledged the Son hath the Father also. It didn't say. What they had was a handwritten Bible by John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe, of course, was from the 1300s and had put together a troop of scribes because he was a man of God, of great integrity, loved the Word of God, and he wanted to give the Bible to the English people. And so the, John, the Wycliffe Bible really was the first English Bible, but it was handwritten. It didn't have print presses at that moment. So they had this Bible. And 1 John chapter 2, verse 23, said, He that acknowledged the Son hath the Father also. That's what Wycliffe had written. But there was no Greek manuscript for it. And so they were at a quandary. They said, what are we going to do? Do we just leave it out? And one of them said this. He said, you know, John Wycliffe gave his life for that Bible. In the most heinous of ways, of course, the Catholics put him to death. Why? Because he had the audacity to make the Word of God known to the average guy. They didn't want that because the Word of God frees people, and they didn't want to free them. And he said, you know, if John Wycliffe went to his grave that way and never recanted anything that he wrote, he must have had a Greek manuscript in his hand. He must have. He had to have had one because he wouldn't have wrote what he did. So here's what we're going to do. Let's put it in italics. We'll put half of it in italics. We'll leave the rest of it the way it is. And we'll make a note of it in the beginning that we didn't have a Greek manuscript, but we did have a Bible of a man who we trusted. So we left it in. Well, John Wycliffe wrote that in the 1300s. In the 1800s, like almost 500 years later, over in the Middle East, the sale of manuscripts is done all the time, especially back then. There was no laws against it, so people would rob graves and everything else, and if they found manuscripts, they would simply sell them to the highest bidder. His name evades me at the moment, but one guy was over there, of course, doing some research. He bought some manuscripts. And one of those manuscripts happened to be a first century manuscript. We now know it's one of the oldest copies of 1 John that there is. It's the oldest one. Maybe even, maybe, we don't know for a fact, but maybe, because it's a first century, it very well may have been penned by the apostle himself. And it contains chapter 2, verse 23. And it says, he that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. You see, if God would inspire his word, gang, he would preserve it. 
And he's done it in the most miraculous ways. The Bible is so accurate. And Satan, even though he has tried his best to come against it, using men of reprobate mind, false teachers, those who want to twist and distort, and even recopy and try to make errors, God has, in his providence and in his power and in his mercy towards us, has kept it pure. And that's what I love about it. You can absolutely trust it. It's amazing stuff. But these are just little things. And when I saw this thing of Janice and Jamrys, I always loved it because that is a New Testament revelation. Paul, speaking by a word of knowledge, just writes it to Timothy as Janice and Jambres. I'm going, There's, that's nowhere in the Old Testament. But Paul speaks it. And he tells you who those guys were. He just tells you a couple thousand years later. Ain't that cool? God is so good. The Lord is amazing. But their folly, he said, would proceed no further, as these false teachers will, will not either. It's for a limited time only. You know, as I said, they were only able to do this. It's, it's only going to happen. False teachers reprobate today. Some of them have the largest churches in America, gang. And some of them around the world. There's a guy right now down in South America who claims to be Jesus Christ. He has a following. He has a church of over 200,000 people. I mean, it's not just here. There's people all over the world. Some of these guys have the largest churches. But their folly, as Paul said, will be manifest. Now that will either happen here or it will happen at the great white throne. But either way, they're not getting away with anything. That's why we need to be grounded in the Word. That's why we need to be aware you know, even Jesus said that in the last days, he said, many will come saying, I am Christ and shall deceive many. Let me give you two ways of looking at that verse. One way to look at it is what I just said. And that is there are people who would come along saying that they themselves were the Messiah. Or there would come those saying that Jesus is the Messiah and would deceive many. The Mormon church says that Jesus is the Messiah along with many other heretical teachings, and there's cannot say. There's so many of them that say that Jesus is the Messiah. So you need to be grounded in the Word of God. Paul warned us that in the last days that many would come preaching another gospel and another Jesus. So it's important that you know the Jesus of the Bible. It's important that you understand the gospel that is taught in the Bible. False teachers and reprobates. They will proceed no further, but unfortunately, they do a lot of damage. So those of us who are students of the Word need to be able to correct and to point this stuff out. It's important. This is what Paul is telling Timothy. Look in verse 10. He says, but thou hast fully known my doctrine, my manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, and patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. Hmm. I love the fact that Paul, and keep it in mind, I just want to reiterate this to you, this is his last epistle that he ever writes. This is his deathbed confession, so to speak. So he's really kind of laying his heart out to Timothy, and he says, you know me. You know me, son. You know what I have taught doctrinally. You understand my manner of life. You've seen me live out the gospel. You know I'm not just speaking. I'm telling you the truth. You know this stuff. You know my manner of life, my purpose, my faith, how much I've had to endure the charity. And the word charity there doesn't mean to just give. It means love in action is what it means. My patience. And he points to all the persecution that he had to endure. Sometimes we don't realize that serving the Lord in truth is kind of a bittersweet thing. In that, as Paul's going to tell us here, all those 
who choose to live godly in Christ shall suffer persecution. That's part of the deal in reality. Because when you stand up for the word of God, you cannot expect everybody to go praise the Lord. When you preach the word of God, you can't expect everybody to just accept it. Why? Most people don't. We're going to find that out here as Paul begins to teach us even further. This is just the way it is. The truth is not always readily accepted, even when it's given in love. Paul suffered these things because of the genuineness of his witness. He lived a humble life and often was humiliated by perverse treatment and circumstances. However, these were tokens of his genuineness, which are in a total contrast to false teachers and reprobates. When you look at the way most of those guys live, they live in wealth and ease. When sometimes, you know, some of the greatest preachers are not. I, I, you know, one of the best examples I ever had was Pastor Chuck Smith. And as a young man, I remember, you know, hearing him teach, and I always assumed that, you know, because he pastored such a large church, I mean, it was a mega church before there was even a mega church, I mean, it was huge, and I always assumed, wrongly, I found out later, that he had a nice big plantation, whatever that might be, only to learn later on that, you know, he lived in a very humble house, very humble dwelling, Chuck never drove a new car, he always drove a used one, um, why? Because he, not because he couldn't. It was because he just simply found better things to do with his money. And he put it back into ministry. And this is a guy who pastored a church. It was bigger than a lot of towns, <laughs> you know. Never took a, 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 had a meager, you know, I think, I think he got, let's see, he was pastoring a church of 20,000. I think his salary was 30, which he tied 50% back to the church. It's a fact. Only the pastors knew that about him because at the conferences we would laugh about it, you know. And I remember one time being at a pastor's conference and there was a, there was a guy, it was, one of them said, you know, it was this really nice car parked down the lot, really nice. I won't even say what it was. It was just a very, very sporty, very nice, very expensive car. And I remember, you know, Chuck asking, whose car was that? And you're talking, there's like 900 pastors there. And I was, at that moment, I was so thankful it wasn't mine. I'm not joking. I mean, you, a lot of times you look at those, you know, and this is like a Jaguar. And it's going, wow, yeah, brother, you know. And I had a guy tell me one time, he said, well, you could drive one of those, Doug. And I said, man, I couldn't be humble. Now, he said, sure you could. He says, when you're pulling out of the church parking lot, don't smile. Just go, you know, just wave, you know, don't smile or anything. Oh, I couldn't do it. But Chuck said, whose car is that? The guy raised his hand. Wow glad it wasn't mine. That's all I know. You know, I just, I was so thankful for that. But this is way a lot of these guys live. They think they deserve it. They think they're entitled to it. You know. And they see the gospel as a means to gain. And we talked about that. You know, Paul warned Timothy about that. You know, there's nothing wrong with being humble. There's nothing wrong with being fruitful. You know, there's nothing wrong with wealth as long as you understand that it is used for the kingdom of God. You know, he, Paul even tells him, he let the, or in Ephesians, he says, let those who stole still no more, but rather let him work with his hand the thing that is good that he might have to give to him that has not. So it's a, it's a means to preach the gospel. It's a means, you know, everything that we have is a means of furthering the gospel. But reprobates, those guys, yeah. They, they, didn't, they, don't, they don't see it that way. Paul, though, he lived that way. And he calls Timothy to remember that, with how he lived, as proof of his genuineness. Look at verse 12. He says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. You understand? Take note of that. He doesn't say they might. He doesn't say it's possible. He says you will. Now, there's different levels of persecution. Not everybody sitting here is going to be called to give your life for the cause of Christ. Not all of us will. Some of us might, but not of us will. You know, this morning, I remember uh, 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 Brother Ed mentioned Columbine. And uh, just so happened, you know, I mean, I, I knew a Calvary Chapel pastor that was there. I mean, he, he ministered to those families. I mean, he knew them. They went to his church. You know, there was a young lady there who 
this kid walked up to her and said, do you believe in Jesus Christ? And she said, yes. And he pulled the trigger on a shotgun in her face. That's persecution. That's severe persecution. Not all of us are called to that. You know, it wouldn't be my wish for anybody to be called to that. But you know what? There's, it's happening all the time in the Middle East. Brothers and sisters are being put to death all the time. Look at how many, you know, photos and videos that ISIS put up of them killing people. And, 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 and it's sad. And, and all those brothers were simply calling on the name of Jesus as they stepped from this life into the next, into the presence of Jesus Christ, you know. But there's levels of persecution. And so often when you just stick to the Word of God and you preach the truth, not everybody's going to like it, you know. And sometimes people don't accept it, but some of them will. And it's the sum that I'm after. You know, I've had people say, well, you know, they don't want to really get into the ministry unless they can pastor a church of 5,000 people. I'm going, brother, it wouldn't matter if it's one or a thousand because I guarantee you that it's those ones that, you know, I, I'm hoping to get a hold of that one D.L. Moody, that next Billy Graham. That's the, the ones I want to get a hold of. I, and you never know who that's going to be. That's why Sunday school teachers have such a great opportunity, especially the ones who have young kids. You never know who that next D.L. Moody is going to be. You know? And, and you, you might be the one. But you know what? And D.L. Moody tells that story about his Sunday school teacher, but nobody ever talks about the Sunday school teacher. His name wasn't mentioned. We all know D.L. If you know anything about church history, we all know D.L. But nobody knows who the Sunday school teacher was. But Jesus does. Jesus does. God does. And that's all that matters. That he knows. And he is taking note of those and giving us the ability to share the gospel with those who will share it with thousands prayerfully. So we never want to lose heart in that. And it's easy to do. It's easy to do. I know I'm talking from personal experience. It's easy to lose heart sometimes when we don't see the progress that we think that we ought to see. It's all in God's time. Here Paul is sitting in prison, and he had to have looked around. He said nobody was here. Nobody was with him but Luke. He was down to the chosen few. And now he's writing this letter to Timothy, and he's going, look, stay the course, preach the word, be careful. I can imagine what that must have been like. But evil men, he says in verse 13, and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So often when we see these guys and, and, and they're pastoring huge churches, I heard a guy say one time, and I agreed with him at the time. I'm not sure about that now. He said, well, I, I, even though they're wrong, I think they believe what they're saying. Well, they well may be, but they're deceived. But not only are they deceived, but they're, be, they're being deceived at the same time. They're deceiving and they're being deceived. It, it's, it's a bad circle. It's a bad thing to be in. These people are very, very dangerous. And, and Paul says here to Timothy, they're going to wax worse and worse. It reminded me of a verse that the Lord, you know, in Matthew 24 and actually in Mark 13. Jesus himself said that about the end times, that the love of many would wax cold, that, that everything would just continue to get worse and worse. And we're watching that. I think we're living in it. I think mostly everybody today realizes that how can we continue to go on the way that we're doing? Not just as a country, but as the world. Now, I realize I, I'm, a, I'm a student of history, and I've, I've read much of the, what went on in World War II and, and was very fortunate that over the years that I've got to talk to many people who lived during that time and were old enough to understand what was going on and how crazy the world looked but I'm telling you the world is absolutely nutty now it's nutty the fact that a lot of it's infiltrated the church and that the word of God has just been relocated to the back burner doesn't really matter that the word of God says on certain things they don't care they no longer endure sound doctrine it's getting worse and worse verse 14 Paul says, but continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. Once again, he's telling him to, you learned this from me. You know me. You know I'm not lying to you. You know, hang on to that. Continue in it. 
And that from a child, he says, thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Great verse. If you're taking note, you need to make note of this verse. I love this verse. Always have. That from a child, he says, thou hast known the holy scriptures. Timothy had a great mom and a great grandmother. And they nurtured him up in it. I don't know about his dad. Um, we know he was a Greek. But that's all we know. So he was half Jew. But he had a great mother and a great grandmother. And they nourished him up in the word of God. Now here's an interesting thing. Paul the apostle here says that from a child thou hast known. You see he says the holy scriptures. You see that? We talked a little bit. I was showing you just some of the miraculous stuff. I gave you one verse, how God has preserved his, his word. Some people, scholars, what they call themselves, Bible scholars. I always love it when I look at statements of faith from churches because what they believe about the scriptures always blows me away. Because here's the way it's described. We believe in the inerrancy of scripture. In the original. <laughs> I love that. I think that's funny. And I've been ridiculed for the position I take on this, and I'm good with that. Because I think that other position is absurd and stupid. Why? Because what they try to indicate is that even though there is no original, if there is, we don't know it. I even gave you the fact that we have a few copies, a piece of it from 1 John that is first century. Did John actually write it? I doubt it. I don't know. We have no way of knowing. So they say, well, we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture as long as it's from the original. Really? Give me a copy of that. Let me have a copy of the original. It's absurd, isn't it? Because it's not going to happen. Because what we have are copies, right? But their implication, of course, is to place that seed of doubt. That's the way Satan operates. He wants to put just a little bit of doubt in your mind. The NIV always thought it was funny because even in the beginning of it, and I didn't mean to get on this tonight, but I just want to throw it out there because of this verse. In the very beginning, the NIV, it was, I'll paraphrase it, it says this, this translation being written as it is by imperfect man falls short of its goals. Well, what's its goal? Well, we know what the goal is. The goal is perfection. What they're telling you is it's not perfect. I can guarantee you it's not because I've read it. It's, it's pretty laughable really in a lot of places, but that's a whole other thing. My point is, is that they want to say that they believe in the inerrancy, the perfection of, of Scripture, as long as it's in the original. Now look at your verse again. Paul says that from a child thou hast known the holy Scriptures. You see that? Which are able to make thee wise unto salvation. Now, when Eunice and Lois was bringing up young Timothy, which Old Testament were they bringing him up in? Were they using the exact original that were, was kept in the Ark of the Covenant? Answer being, no. They were rearing him up on a what? Copy. It was a copy. And Paul called that copy holy scripture. Why? Because it was just as accurate as the one that was penned by Moses. Why? Because God, if he will inspire, which we're going to look at here in a minute, he will also preserve. Why? Because why would God give us his inspired word and then just commit it to the hands of imperfect men? Knowing, knowing how corrupt they really are. Because if anybody understands the depravity of man, it's God. Which is why he sent Jesus. But that's the fact, you know, Paul calls the scriptures that Timothy was reared on holy scriptures. And here's what he says about the Old Testament, that they were able to make him wise unto salvation, which is in Christ Jesus, which is also amazing because most Christians don't realize that the gospel was first preached from the Old Testament. That's to where they got it. It's all the way through there. Jesus said, lo, in the volume of the book it is written of me. I can't wait. I was reading a book by Jeffries, which I like. 
But he made a comment in there about, you know, he, he gets in the middle of Leviticus and it kind of bogs him down. Not, that's my words, not his. But that's what he was saying. Not me. Oh, I can't, oh, I can't wait. I, I'm hoping that we're still around. The Lord hasn't come back yet before we get to Leviticus because, man, it's one of my favorite books to teach through. Why? Because Jesus is on almost every page in one way or another, in some form. He's there. You know, you, you will never guess again why we should study the Old Testament once we get to go through it. Because it's just amazing. It's absolutely amazing because he's there. He's all the way through it. And when he said, it is written of me in the volume of the book, he meant it. <laughs> because he is there. And it speaks of him so clearly and so concise. And it's just an absolute amazing thing when we get to go through it. But Timothy was raised up on the Old Testament. It contained the gospel. So he was to continue in them things. To, you know, because he had been reared in it. Look at verse 16. He says, all Scripture, all Scripture, if you take a note, underline it, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, at first he tells Timothy, he says, that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation, which is through Christ Jesus. Then he goes on, he says, now all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That word in the Greek is the word theonoustos. It's, it means God breathed. Literally, God breathed. All of it. All of it. From the beginning of the book of Genesis to the last amen in the book of Revelation. It is all God breathed. It is absolutely the Word of God. Now, let me, let me get this. I want to make sure I drive this home to you. I want you to get this. Whether you're sitting here, whether you're watching on Facebook, you're listening to me on radio. I want you to get this. If the Word of God is absolutely God-breathed, if it's theonoustos, it's the very breath of God given to mankind, what priority should we put on it? Absolutely. Number one. It's got to be. Because if it's, if it's not, then you're going to see happen to the body of Christ what we are seeing happening to the body of Christ. You will see everything diminish when we don't put the Word of God first. The psalmist said he sent his Word and he healed them. Man, you know, we, we see so many things that we're lacking in the body of Christ. Why? It's because the Word of God is lacking in the body of Christ. He says, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's breathed in by God. And it is profitable, he says, for doctrine. Doctrine's important. I've said this before, and I will say it until the Lord calls me home. Most people who change churches... You know, those, us pastors like to call them steeple chasers. Call them what you want. People jump from church to church. But most of the time, they don't do it for the reason that they probably should. I have rarely found anybody who either came to Calvary Chapel or left Calvary Chapel and went someplace else who went there because of a doctrinal problem. They went there because they had a better children's program. They went there because they had a better parking lot or the pastor didn't comb his hair the way I did. It was some other goofy reason that had nothing to do with the scriptures or with doctrinal stands. And in reality, it should. I have no problem when a person says, you know what, doctrinally, brother, I just don't agree with you. And here's why. And so we can say, well, you know what, I see why you see that. I don't agree with you. You don't agree with me. How can two men walk except they be agreed? With my blessing, brother, go find a place that you feel comfortable. I've done that. But very rarely. Most of the time, people just go, well, you know, I'm just kind of tired. There. You know, the, the children's programmer, you know, the service is at a better time for me over there. They got better coffee. I like their donuts better. I'm making a joke, but you know what? It's a fact. People do it. It's good. The inspired word is profitable for doctrine. Doctrine is important. For reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. I want you to take note of that. You notice it doesn't say for instruction to be righteous. It says for in righteousness. 
Why? Because righteousness is imputed to you by Jesus Christ. It's something that you either are or you're not. And the Word of God is inspired, it's given to us, it's good for instruction in righteousness. That means because you are holy, because you are righteous, the Word of God shows us what the life of a person who is righteous ought to look like. Thus it gives us instruction in those things. Not to be that way, because we only get that way by imputation. That's through Jesus Christ. He imputes his righteousness to us by faith alone. But it's for instruction in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So it's to make us, if you want to call it mature, you can call it mature. But that's what it's for. Let's look at chapter 4, verse 1. Paul writes to Timothy, he says, I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Man, that's a heavy statement he lays on Timothy now. After telling him everything, you know, to, to, to watch out for false teachers, and he, he gives us, we've been through three chapters already. He talks about prophetic signs of the end. Now he tells him, he says, I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at the appearing and his kingdom. So he actually says, look, take, it, take heed to what I'm saying, because you will give an answer one of these days. I mean, he loves this young man, this young pastor, but he's laying, this is a very heavy thing that he's laying on Timothy. I want you to get that. And what is it that he lays on him? He lays that on him. He says, I'm charging you before God and before Jesus Christ. Preach the word. Preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. Somebody posted this on Facebook. And it just reminded me because I was teaching through this. And I saw this. I won't mention any names, Ty Bender. And... She, she posted this, and I saw it, and I thought this is funny because it just, it fit what I was preaching on. So I just want to read you, it, 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 actually I'm missing some of the words, but I just want to give this in. The title was, uh, you know, out of ideas to keep his church relevant, pastor resigns himself to just preaching the gospel. It's satire, if you haven't got that so far. Portland, Oregon. After finally exhausting his ideas of wacky stunts and relevant movie clips, this pastor and Hokey, and doing hokey church skits, pastor, local pastor Jim Auburn resigned himself to just preaching the gospel this coming Sunday. Sources close to the pastor confirmed, after preaching through every Marvel and Disney movie and performing over 50 death-defying stunts every Sunday, the somber pastor finally admitted that he had no other ideas and he would simply go to preaching the gospel and moving forward. Sources claimed that Auburn had been scraping the bottom of the barrel lately by preaching of, on Battlestar Galactica and Buffy the Vampire Slayer before coming to the end of his rope in Christ and just preaching him crucified. He quotes, I've browsed through the entire Netflix catalog and checked all the incoming films. There's just nothing there. He reportedly muttered to himself, and he frantically tried, as he frankly tried to come up with some other stuff, and he guess he's just going to open the old Bible and see what's there. It's really sad that it had to come to this to grow my church, even if I don't launch myself from a cannon this Sunday. Now that is funny. But you know what? It's sadly true. It's sadly true. I've heard pastors preach on movie titles on songs, on everything else. And I've heard a lot of them do it. I remember one of the admonitions of Pastor Chuck, and I know I mention him a lot. He's home with the Lord, but he was one of the best examples that I had. He was a man very, very uh, inspirational to me as a, as a man of God. But one of the things I heard him say a long time ago, and I, and, I, and I have to admit, there's been a couple times that I've veered from it. But he said, whatever you do, don't preach on movies. Don't do it. Why? You got a Bible. Preach the Bible. You got plenty there. Use that. And this is what Paul tells Timothy. Forget the stunts. 
forget the gimmicks. Forget all the slick things, the programs that you think are going to bring people into the church. It isn't going to happen. What's going to bring them? Paul says, preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. What's he mean by that? The word instant, it just simply means when it's convenient and when it's not convenient. Well, when's preaching the word not convenient? I can tell you, personal experience. Give me the book of Romans. Let me teach through Romans. You've sat with me. Some of these people have heard me teach through it many times. I love teaching through Romans. I love teaching through Hebrews. Why? Because the grace of God and all that Jesus Christ has done is so evident. Man, I can get loud. I can preach. I can go, man, look at Jesus. It's all Jesus. Look at all he's done for us. I love it. <coughs> but then you've got to come to a corrective book like 1 Timothy. And I have to admit my enthusiasm is dampered a little bit. Why? It's, it's a little uncomfortable sometimes. But we're supposed to preach the word when it's convenient and when it's not. When you feel like it and when you don't feel like it. Oh, I really do wish that the only books in the Bible was Romans and Hebrews. What a great book it would be. And it is a great book. But it's the balance. It's the fullness of God. That's why the fullness is what we want. It's what we need, to be honest. This is why Paul tells him that. And he says to do it in season, out of season, to reprove. You see that? Rebuke, to exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. When Paul tells Timothy to preach the word, of course, I want to remind you, he's talking about the Old Testament. Now, no doubt when Paul would write his letters, they would send them out and he would say, cause this to be read in all the churches. But they still were not accepted at that moment as canonal. I mean, we'll talk about that some other time. But what was canonal was the Old Testament. So he told him to be faithful to that. There were times during the, the life of Paul, because the letters had not been yet canonized and put together, there were people, false teachers, reprobates, who would take advantage of such things. They would write a letter. And in order to try to give validity to it, they would simply sign Paul's name to it. And they would send those to churches. This is why Paul said, if an angel from heaven or a letter as from us preach any other thing. You know, so once again, they, we were warned about that. But he says, look, here, Timothy, preach the word. You know, stay in it. It's the Old Testament. That's what he was talking about. Once again, be instant. That's to stand upon the word of God. That's what the word instant means. Stand on it. When, I, when we built Calvary Chapel, the stage area, i never forget it, had a young man, very talented woodworker, carpenter, still is, that's what he does, building this beautiful, it was big half moon, big, big stay, it was nice. But I remember walking in there and I said, hey, can you build me a, a compartment? He goes, where's the pulpit going to be? I said, the pulpit's going to be right about here. Can you, I, I want you to give me a compartment underneath there. And before you seal it up, let me know. He said, well, how big's it got to be? And I gave him the dimensions, about this big. So he calls me up. He says, hey, I'm going to be sealing that floor today. So your box is ready. So I took me a Bible and I went down there and I opened it up. And I put it in that box. And I said, you can seal it. So they put the floor down. And I did that for one simple thing. I always wanted to be able to say that I was standing on the word of God when I preached. And I know that sounds a little crazy, but I meant it. You know, and I always... You know, we tried to have a little sticker up there at the pulpit to, as a reminder that said, let them see Jesus. You know, you're standing on the Word of God, but what do you want? You want them to see Jesus. You don't have to see me. You have to see the Lord, you know, because if I haven't made him clear to you, then I have failed in my job. Because that's what we're to do, is to bring them. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw them in unto me. Paul goes on here. After telling him to preach the word and to reprove and rebuke and to exhort, he says, for the time will come. He doesn't say it might come. He said it will come. And you're living it. I believe that, you know, Paul wrote this almost 2,000 years ago. And he says the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. 
The word endure here is interesting. Some of your Bibles might translate it to put up with, bear with, suffer, to forbear. Literally, in the Greek, the word means to hold oneself up against. And Paul says the time's going to come when they will not hold themselves up against sound doctrine. Why? Because it convicts. It's not a warm fuzzy. It doesn't feel good. Conviction. But to the wise, conviction is a good thing. The wise love instruction. The, love, the wise love correction. Who wants to walk in error but a fool? But yet this is going to be an earmark of the last days and of the hearts of people because they won't endure it. They, don't want, they would rather have somebody tell them what they want to hear instead of what they need to hear. Recently, I was reminded of a quote from an old preacher who said, In the beginning, God created man in his own image, and ever since, man has tried to return the favor. I thought, yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, it's true. And isn't that the truth? It is, you know, because so often we wind up trying to create the God of our own liking. I remember years ago, back in 82, uh, yeah, it would have been 82, it was my first stint on radio. And I was doing, I, I, I did this Friday night show. It was one of the first Christian rock shows. It was called The Power Source. Just a bunch of kids on fire for the Lord, and we just wanted But I, I, I was trying to do some funny stuff, and I came up with this thing. And I did this commercial. It was a phony commercial. But it had this, like, banjo music, like, used car salesman music. You know what I mean? Ah, folks, my name. And I did this, and I did it off the top of my head so fast. And I actually had a good friend of mine. His name was Rusty Francis sitting in the, com in the, in the console room. And I just did it. I had no script. Hi, there, friends and neighbors. My name is, and I did this thing about it, new and used religions is what it was called. <laughs> you know? If you're tired of setting, you know, and, and, and I, do, I went into this thing because, in the course, the, the company was on the corner of Hellbound and Fire Lake, and uh, it was it was just funny. But you know, people really live that. They 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 actually want to create a religion to suit their very own needs, one that makes you feel good all the time. Yet it's not too uncomfortable. You see, Paul said they will not endure. There's going to come a time when they won't hold themselves up against sound doctrine. No, they'll run from that. And they'll turn their ears away from the truth, which is the word of God, and shall be turned unto fables. I heard it said one time that when a person leaves the word of God, they will embrace fantasies. When a man rejects God's truth, it isn't that he believes nothing, it's that he's come to the point where he'll believe anything. And that's sad. But boy, we are living there. We, to, to watch some of the stuff that is preached by guys that ought to know better is just absolutely scary. And to watch the new movement, of course, right now is to reject hell. You know, there's no such thing as hell now. I was on a Calvary Chapel site the other day, and they were given a list of books to read. And this was back in, the, the list was from like 98. I wanted to write to the guy and say, you better update your, your, your catalog. Because he had a guy in there by the name of Steve McVeigh who, write, who wrote a segment called, a book series called Grace Walk. That guy has went the way of Balaam. His new book is talking, oh man, I don't even want to go into it. But it's typical of what's going on today in the body of Christ the rejection of the simple teaching of God's truth. And it's sad because there's so many people that are going that way. They just have no taste for the truth and for the balance that we find in the Word of God. But Paul tells him here in verse 5, he says, But watch thou in all things, endure affliction, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. Now, as we get ready to close here, I just want to, I want to leave them here. We're going to leave verse 5. We're going to pick it up next time. But I, I want to say this about this, this, this statement that Paul makes here. To do the work of an evangelist. Whenever I've taught on the subject of evangelism, I always challenge people 
to fulfill the Great Commission that Jesus gave to each and every person, and that is to preach the gospel and to make disciples. That's a commandment, gang. This is what Jesus told us to do. And every time I've taught through that, and I, and I give that challenge, I have heard more excuses from people. But the one that I get that always blows me away is I've heard people say, well, I'm not Billy Graham, Doug. Which, you know, tr translation, I'm not an evangelist, therefore I do not evangelize. <laughs> That's what they actually mean by that. Well, I'm no Billy Graham. I've never led anybody to the Lord. Translation. That's what they mean. But here the apostle tells Timothy to do the work of evangelists. Listen, gang, there's a vast difference between doing the work of an evangelist and being an evangelist. Okay? There really is. In fact, you know, Paul wrote in Ephesians. In chapter 4, he says, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Of course, the rest of the verse is for the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry. That's all great. My point being is that there are people who hold the office of evangelists, no doubt. They're anointed men and some women. You know, you think of guys like Billy Graham, who's now home with the Lord. Franklin Graham. You know, Greg Laurie. Look at, what, look, look at the crowds. I mean, last year, was, I mean, they went to that Texas thing. He's doing it again. There was like 67,000 people that attended that. I mean, come on. 30,000. This guy gets up. He blows me away because he's a Calvary Chapel guy. And I love him to death. I've had him serve me communion. And, you know, he's a great guy. But he gets up, and I'm going, he preaches 10 minutes. And 10,000 people come to Christ. That's an evangelist. Why? He's anointed. You can't deny it. The guy, plus, you know, Greg's one of those really strange guys because not only is he a, an evangelist, but he's also a pastor. But those guys are far and few between. Pastor, evangelist, they're just far and few. He's just one of the few. But I heard Greg say this one time. I was sitting, listening to him personally. And he was talking to, at one of our pastor's conferences. And he said, look, gang. He said, a lot of you Calvary guys, and it's not just Calvary guys, because I don't sit in the Calvary Chapel anymore. I sit here, and I would say the same problem. He says, most of you guys are afraid to give an altar call. And he says, the reason you're afraid to give an altar call is because you're afraid you will hear crickets chirping. Let them chirp. Give them an opportunity. Preach the gospel. Give them an opportunity. And here, then he said this, and I thought, wow, that's, that's smart. He says, I'm an evangelist. You're thinking I'm an evangelist, and you're right, I am. By God's grace, that's what I am. But if you are not, and you have a church, and you are not gifted in evangelism, find you a man or a woman who is. Put them on staff. That's what he told us. If you're not an evangelist, get you somebody who is. Find you somebody who is. But in the meantime, do the work of an evangelist. Listen, you don't have to be an anointed evangelist to lead somebody to Jesus. Leading somebody to Jesus, is, you know, the word evangelist simply means preaching the gospel. You know that, right? That's what it means in the Greek, to, to spread the good news. That's a supernatural thing. It really is. You know, I could sit here and hammer it all day long and all night, you, and you'd be going, Doug, just get finished, please. Got to eat. Get hungry. And I will. But it is a supernatural thing. It really is. There's no program that's effective. There's no thing that I can point. There's no book that's going to turn you into a person that shares their faith more than your knowledge of the Word of God, Jesus Christ, and what He's done for you. You know, and the Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. If the Lord has been good, then tell somebody else. Go to your family first. Go to those around you. You know, your Jerusalem, your Judea, your Samaria, the uttermost parts of those type of things. It's not hard, but it is a challenge. Paul tells Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. That's the question tonight. Have you done it? Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the perfection of it. We thank you 
that it is complete and entire and totally trustworthy. Lord, we are so thankful that you did not leave us without instruction and did not leave us without love letters, Lord Father, how much you care for each and every one of us. Lord, we ask that you would just use tonight's study, that you would encourage us, Lord Father, to share the gospel, that others who do not know you, Lord Father, would come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. We love you so much. We ask for your blessing on the word, Lord Father, and those who hear it. In Jesus' name.